Good morning. Axum Jacks. I really didn't know what was going to happen when I said that. I'm new here. That's a, I thought maybe it'd be dangerous. I don't know, but it is good to be together. And hey, what is? Uh, thank you, Lord. Right? Thank you, Lord. Just look around for a moment. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your kindness to us. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Second Timothy for the next 14 weeks. 13, actually. But I want you to think in your life, do you know anybody, have you ever had someone in your life that played such a vital, intimate role that when they spoke, you listened? They're the type of person that if there was noise going on in the room and they begin to, to speak, people just naturally listen. Perhaps they were older in age. And I want you to imagine that person being later on in, in their years, nearing the end of their life. They can't call you, but, but you find out that you've received a letter from them, and you know you may not actually be able to see them or to speak to them again. And this person knows you so well that they basically adopted you. They mentored you. They showed you what it was to, to live, to be a man, to be a woman. They taught you the things of God. They invested their life in you. And you receive the letter, and you look at the letter, and there's wet spots. You notice these are likely tear drops soaked into the letter. And you know their situation is, is one of, of a terminal cause. How would you read that letter? How would you look at every word and consider that this may be the last time you ever hear from them? As we begin this letter of 2 Timothy, it's the final correspondence that Timothy will receive from Paul, a man who mentored him, discipled him, deployed him in, in mission works. And as he nears the end of his life, he writes, to Timothy, burdened that Timothy would be healthy in his ministry, that he would fulfill the ministry calling that God had given him. As we look at our text this morning, we're going to notice two key principles for every one of us in our life that we might apply to understand as the near will, that the end will come near for every one of us. No matter your age, we don't know how long God is going to give us on this earth. But the end will come for every one of us. How do you want to finish your ministry race? We get an insight into Paul's mind as he begins this letter. And I think from here we can glean two incredible insights for how you and I hope to fulfill the ministry that God has called us. That's to glorify him by making disciples, making followers of Jesus Christ until the Lord would call us home and, and we worship him and praise and we live for him and we honor him perfectly as his people, as his assembly. So as you open your Bible, let's begin as we look first and foremost that when the end draws near, we're called to take time to recall what we know. Regardless of your season of life, when the end draws near, you and I are called to stop and to take time to consider what we know. 
And we know first and foremost, two little truths here in the very introduction of this letter. We know first and foremost that we stand on a firm foundation. If you know Christ, if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, I didn't just say, did you grow up in church, but if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, if you've understood that you bring nothing but your sin to the table on being made right with God, that you and I are woefully broken, we've done broken things, and we would desire to do even more broken things. We cannot make ourselves right or holy before God, but God in his great love for us in fulfilling the scriptures would send his son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, and he would take on the fullness of man, of flesh. He'd be born of a virgin, he would grow, and he'd fulfill all the scriptures. And he would live a sinless life unlike you or I, and he would lay his life down on the cross, he would defeat death and he would raise again and that anyone, regardless of what you've done or been done to you, that you can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You can become a follower of Christ. You can be made truly forgiven in Jesus. This is the offering that, that is offered to each of us if we will but entrust ourselves to Jesus our King, the perfect sacrifice, the God-man, and it's this Jesus, if you but come to him, you can know that you stand on a firm foundation with whatever season of life will come your way. Look at the very beginning in verse 1 as we read this. The first part of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, every person builds their life on a foundation. Paul's foundation was as an apostle of what? of Christ Jesus. His foundation was Christ Jesus. And the word that's been sufficiently given through his apostleship, this, this set amount of, of, of men that the God had called and equipped and, and, and spoken through to give us his word. Paul's life foundation, as he writes this from a jail cell, is of Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room and outside of this room has built their life on a foundation. If you're married, you've built your marriage on a foundation. And the storms of life that begin to beat against your house, seasons of sickness or seasons as you near death or you near frustrations or your life gets flipped upside down in a way you could never possibly expect, those storms of life that will come to every one of us, the storms don't build foundations. The storms reveal the foundation that your life is built upon. And every one of us are promised that we will go through seasons of storms, that the Lord will allow hardships to come into our life, just as he did Paul. And it will reveal the, the foundation of your life. But if you're in Christ, as Paul was, you have a firm foundation the world cannot strip away your joys. It cannot strip away your hopes or your purposes. You have a firm foundation that will cause you to weather all the storms and seasons of life. When I do marriage counselings for couples, uh, one of the first questions I ask them is, tell me, why will your marriage survive to reach that death-do-you-part commitment? And it usually gets awkward at this point. Right? And they begin to share things, and they'll say, well, I love them. I care about them. So that's great. But you ever get angry at them? Well, yeah. 
Well, well, I think we'll survive because our personality is so similar. We're just so, so much in common. Yeah, but what happens if difficulty of life begins to happen and maybe multiple miscarriages or infertility or, or, or they lose their job and their, and their disposition begins to change? What then? They say, well, we do a lot of stuff together. What happens if life changes and you can't do that stuff together anymore? And you begin to walk through everything. What that couple is sharing is, is all the things in their life that they say, this makes us strong. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to uproot it and point out that when the storms of life hit, what your true foundation on, what your true foundation is, will determine the legitimacy of your house standing in the storms of life, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, that the one who hears the word of God and builds their life upon his word, they will be the one that survives the storms that come. And the same idea is applied here at the very beginning of this final letter that Paul sends. It's a promise to you. Listen, it's a promise to you and I that as our end draws near, if our life is built upon the foundation of Christ Jesus, we will endure because the circumstances of height or depth, sickness and health, the betters or for worses of all of life, will not strip away your foundation, but it will reveal it. How many times is a foundation laid? A good foundation is laid but once, and Christ is the perfect foundation. Christ is the perfect foundation. We come to Christ and we find a word that we can build our life upon. Even if you grew up in church and you find yourself, even this morning, realizing, you know what? I don't know if I've really built my life upon this. Today, Uproot that bad foundation before the storm causes you to see how poor it is and build it upon Christ. Build it upon the one that we sing to. Not one that we sing to as though he might exist, but we sing to the one that does exist. Jesus Christ defeated death. He rose again and he sits at the right hand of the Father right now. He intercedes for us. He's pleased with our worship. He rejoices as people sing to him and live for him. What is your foundation in seasons of life as the end draws near? Remember, remember that we stand on a firm foundation, the firm foundation. Secondly, we, as we continue on into verse 2, we find that we know that, that we've received a new identity in Christ from God. You and I have received a new identity in Christ from God. Verse 2, he says to Timothy, my beloved child, and look at this, grace mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, remember, we went through our Acts 17 series as Paul was on his second missionary journey. That's where he met Timothy. He gets matched up with Timothy on this journey, and he really adopts him in the faith as a son. But if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're not, Paul has a history. He's an expert in the Jewish law. And as an expert in the Jewish law, he sees that there's this little group that begins to sprout up, and they're causing all kinds of trouble, and they're teaching that this Jesus of Nazareth is claiming to be the Messiah. And you think, that's ridiculous. He was crucified. And you hear words that they're saying, no, no, he rose from, he was crucified according with God's word, but he rose again. And he ascended to heaven, and he's going to come again. He's going to come not the second time for salvation, but he's going to come again in judgment. He's going to come for his bride. And you hear this, and, and Paul hears this message, and he 
takes it upon himself as somebody who believes in what he believes is, is the right teaching of scriptures, and he goes around and he begins to persecute Christians. And so if he would have met somebody like Timothy before he met Jesus, if Paul would have met Timothy before he met Jesus, he would have desired to see Timothy imprisoned and executed. But what happens when Paul meets Jesus? His story is radically changed. He receives a new identity. And instead, how's the story turn out? The story turns out that Paul himself is imprisoned, awaiting eventual execution. He knows where this path is going to go. And he's writing to Timothy, who he loves in the faith as a son and he's writing to him about how he can be more effective in fulfilling his ministry of telling people and making disciples of Jesus Christ. You see how Jesus, he gives us a new identity regardless of what you've based your life upon, regardless of what you're pressured to do to think, I am valuable because this is what I do. I'm valuable because this is what I feel. Jesus says, no, you are valuable in me. Jesus lived the sinless life. You're valuable in him. You can rest in Jesus. He is our identity. The scriptures make this clear, that if you come to Christ, your true identity is one who has a new hope. You are a new creation. You have new desires and, and, and that, that wage war against your old desires to the point that you also have a new enemy. Before you become a Christian, the scriptures teach that you are an enemy of God. But when you place your trust and faith in Jesus, you become an enemy of the world. You have a new allegiance. In addition to that, if you would take a moment, I know this may be uncomfortable for you, but look around. It's kind of like that, I'm not supposed to look around. Look around, just look around for a second. Here you go, make that awkward eye contact. You got it. Some of you are like, I am not looking off of that pulpit. I feel it, I see it. Right. You also have a new family. Paul is not biologically related to Timothy, but how does he treat him? As his family, as his son. Paul does this again and again and again in all the letters of Scripture that he writes. They have a family. He treats the church as his family because they are his family. We're related through the blood, not our blood, but the blood of Christ. And he gives three words in this common greeting. It is a common greeting in Paul's letters. Three words, grace, mercy, and peace. But just because it's a common greeting for Paul to give doesn't mean there's not rich theology here. You see, if you've come to Christ, your new identity is that you are, you are a person of grace. You are a person of grace, of unearned favor. That God has lavished his unearned favor upon you. You've been adopted by grace. When we distribute the Lord's Supper here at the end of our service, you have nothing in your hands to bring. Does this make sense? You're a recipient as you sit and it comes and the elements of representing the, 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 the spilt blood and broken body of our Lord, you receive them empty-handed. The grace of becoming a Christian is you receive Christ empty-handed. You bring nothing to the table of holiness or righteousness. But we bring our sin to the table and we receive what Christ has made us worthy to receive through grace 
and mercy. Grace and mercy. We were once the people that didn't know grace, but now we know grace, and we were once the people that didn't know mercy, which means the wrath of God, it rested on us. But now you know the mercy of God. The, the punishment was put upon him. And what did that punishment bring us? Peace. It brought us peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Now think about that for a second. You have peace with God. You don't have a ceasefire with God. Do you know the difference? You have true, adopted, righteous peace with God. So that when you lie next, if you lie next, I thought that would get a laugh. That was a total fail. That's right. That you don't immediately go into a standing of being an enemy of God again. But you have an adopted peace with God because Christ perfectly paid the fullness of our sin on the cross. Now, we shouldn't use that freedom to go about sinning. Paul's very clear about that. He says, never be. Don't ever let that happen. But you have a true peace with God. That's what the gospel gives you is a true peace. Listen, let me ask you a question. Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? If you don't today, entrust yourself to Christ and gain peace with God. So we find ourselves in these seasons of life that come our way. As the end begins to draw near, we need to take time and remember that we stand on a firm foundation that you and I have received a new identity in Christ. But secondly, as the letter begins to proceed on, we see that when the end draws near, we're called to thank God that he chose to adopt us into a family. When the end begins to draw near, we need to remember what we know is sure, that we have a new identity and we stand on a firm foundation. But secondly, we're called to have an attitude of thankfulness. This is what Paul does in his letters. Now remember his context. He's not writing this from Maui. You know? <laughs> He's not Instagram-worthy anything that's taking place right now. He is in the hardship of jail with chains. And he begins this letter with what? With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy for us to do that, but it means we can be thankful because we've been adopted into his family. It's not a solo. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not an individual sport. It's community. It's team-based. It's family-based. So let me tell you three things about our family that we see in this text. First, we see that we have a family. You've been adopted into a family with ancient roots. A family with ancient roots. Verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. So meaning I'm, I'm consistent with what the Scriptures have taught the whole time as they foretold of the Messiah. So I have a clear conscience about all this as I remember you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers, night and day. Night and day. Christianity didn't begin yesterday. And it didn't begin when you and I came to faith in Christ. We have an ancient family. Not only do we have an ancient family of billions of believers who have already died and gone on to be with the Lord and, and are looking forward to his return and the glorified resurrected body and all that good stuff. But right now, all across the world, there are literally hundreds of millions of believers gathering together as a church family, worshiping our king in a multitude of nations and languages. One of my favorite stories I've heard about our Poland team that came back. 
as they were able to hear the Lord being worshipped in the Polish language. And they could hear the rhythm and they knew the song. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, if you've ever been able to worship Christ and to hear people singing in another language. It's incredible, isn't it? You don't entirely know what's going on, but you know what's going on. You know what I'm saying? That is going to be all of eternity, worshiping Christ, a people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. I believe not just singing, but living a life of obedience for our King for all of eternity as his collective bride, that we are a part of a family with ancient roots. Grace Bible Church is 78 years old, around 1940 when it began with 37 charter members. Part of the distinctives of Grace Bible Church is that she's a church that believes in the inerrant, authoritative word of God as our foundation. And I don't know if you could think of any of the 37 names that's 78 years old. That's not that old. And all the older people said, amen. <laughs> right. And I can't list you their names, but I can tell you, you and I have been blessed by their commitment to build our church, an abiding commitment to the Word of God. You know what I'm saying? They had a commitment to missions, and they believed in a commitment of living out the family of God, loving one another, sharing with one another, forgiving one another. 78 years from now, in 2090, when they ride their hoverboards to church and all that stuff that happens, they probably won't remember our names. But I do believe that they will be blessed when we build our lives upon the faithfulness of God and realize that the family of God is bigger than any one of us. We are indebted together as the body of Christ to love one another and to live and demonstrate the one another's together. Matter of fact, if you leave sometime, you go through our foyer, you get here a few minutes early before the service, I encourage you, you can spend some time looking at our church history and how that fits in a Christendom that Roman and Cynthia and others did a great job putting together. So, so you can celebrate church because you're a part of a family with ancient roots, and secondly, you're a part of a family that sheds actual tears. A family that sheds actual tears. Verse 4. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul loves Timothy. He discipled him. Discipled meaning he trained him up. He loves him. So much so that literal tears, grown man tears in Timothy as a young man, he's, he's crying because of his love for Paul and Paul's love for Timothy. They have true family. They're grieved. You are a part of a family that has actual tears, and this is actually a consistent longing. Paul longs to see him again. I'm going to give you some references. You can write these down. I'm not going to take the time to flip there. But I want you to see that this is a consistent theme. This is not just only with Timothy, but this is a consistent theme of shedding tears and longing to see the family of God. So let me give you some references. He does this twice to the church in Philippi in Philippians 1.8, Philippians 1.8, and chapter 4, verse 1. He says it specifically twice to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 1, verse 11. And chapter 15, verse 23. Romans 1, 11 and 15, 23. He, th- he says it to the church at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. And there's about a dozen references I could give you to the churches in Corinth that he says in various languages, various phrases. We, have a, we are a part of a family that sheds actual tears. 
Sarah and I are so thankful to be here. I know Stephen and Megan would say the same as, as well. One of the greatest blessings of being a part of a, of a college community is that the Lord brings you people from all over the place, even places like Missouri, right? The Lord brings you together professors and administrators and students from all over the place. But I give you a warning. Because one of the dangers of being either in a perceived season of your life that you think is very small, it comes with a massive warning that can impact your ability to enjoy tears with the family. Because we have seen so many people in our lives, in our ministry, that they came to town, they thought, well, I'm only going to be here for a year or two years or maybe four years. Or if you're a super senior, maybe seven, eight years, right? <laughs> And so you think, you know what, I don't know if I want to really commit this tightly together because I know it's going to hurt when I have to leave. That's like a a couple at their wedding day. Getting to the very last part of that vows of death do us part and realizing, wait a minute, we're going to part? Let's call this thing off. You'd never do that. We don't know exactly how long Paul spent with Timothy to the exact date. But whatever it was, it was long enough to be bonded together. We do know that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. So in Acts chapter 20, when Paul's leaving, it says that all these elders in Ephesus gathered together and they wept for him. So three years is for sure long enough. But I encourage you to dive in because here's what happens. Listen, here's what happens. If you come at this with the mindset of, I'm only going to be here a short amount of time, I'm not going to really get engaged. Do you know what's going to happen when you leave and you move to another community? you know what you're going to do there? The same thing. The same thing. But instead, dive in so deeply that you're so ingrained in the life of the church that when you leave, our, our middle-aged adults and our senior adults are, are, are weeped and are grieved that you're leaving and they, and they love you and they want to follow and see what you're doing in your life. And this goes for all of us at every age. So that when you hear of a church member is in the hospital, you're grieved and you're driven right away to prayer. And you want to see them or you want to write them and see how they're doing. Be grieved. Grieving only happens in this way for the body of Christ if we spend time together. If we take ownership of one another like a family. And this is ours in Christ. We have that privilege to be bonded together for Christ. We're a family that sheds actual tears. And thirdly, we are a family that invests in one another. A family with ancient roots, so thank God for that. A family that sheds actual tears, thank God for that. And thirdly, we are a family that invests in one another. Truly, thank God for that. Look at verse 5 through 7. Paul says, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, this outward validation of what I've seen internally in you. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, look at this, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We have arguably here four relationships of investment. Did you see it? Four relationships of investment. One of those is Lois to Eunice. So Lois is the grandmother. Eunice is Timothy's mother. 
There's some kind of discipleship relationship that took place in the generations, Lois to Eunice. And secondly, then we have Lois and Eunice to Timothy. They trained him up in the Scriptures, the Old Testament and and the Scriptures, and, and built for him a foundation to love the Word, to love, ultimately, to love Christ, that the Word is all about. Thirdly, we have Paul over here who's invested in Timothy. So we have these three relationships, and as we go on to chapter 2, we see that Timothy has a responsibility to entrust the gospel down here to faithful men, to faithful people in the Lord, to develop them and to grow them and entrust the gospel in them. There's four generations, there's four connections of investment in the church. Timothy would not be the man he was if it wasn't the intentional investment of other believers in the Lord. If you are a Christian, you would not be who you are without the intentional investment of other people to teach you the things of God. And if you haven't been discipled, I mean intentionally trained and developed in the faith, we want to do that. Small groups is a great practical way to do that. FFE with our ladies, I encourage you to be a part of that. That once a month gathering that takes place together of the generations. Be a part of our men's studies that take place, this intentional connection of the generations. Be involved with Adopt-A-Jack. Be involved with these areas where you look and there's people that are pouring into your life. But don't just get poured into nonstop. Prayerfully look for opportunities to pour into the life of others. They're going to help us to do exactly what he says at the very end of verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Do you have people in your life right now that are pouring into your life, that are helping you to live a life consistent with the word, in power, that's boldness, in love, sacrificial giving love, and self-control. Do you have people that are doing that for you? And secondly, do you have other people you're doing that for? If you don't, that's your job. That's our job. All of us. I want to give you a challenge today. One of the challenges we have for this whole series is to read through the book of 2 Timothy every week. It takes about 10 or 12 minutes. You can listen to it as well. But I have another piece of homework I'd like for you to do. Take time this week, only a few minutes, take time this week to write down the names of the people that you know have invested in you, the things of Christ. That's part one. Part two is this. Think through all the people that you could never list their names, but you know they changed their lives to impact your life. So when I read from an English translation, guess what? I'm standing on the shoulders of people that have spent countless hours learning the languages and translating. When I was a little baby growing up in church, there were countless ladies and men that gave their time to wake up a couple hours early to make sure they were at church so that I didn't get kidnapped. (laughs) I had Sunday school teachers. I had people that were teaching me the Bible that, that went to great efforts to prepare lessons for me. I had untold numbers of people that that prayed behind my back for me. And you did too. Matter of fact, if you're a college student and your parent is here, let me give you a spoiler alert. I'll tell you right now, their biggest fear is that when they leave, you'll have no more connection to the local church. 
Because just like a piece of driftwood disconnected from the ground floats away in the ocean. Their fear for you and their prayer for you, and I promise they'll be praying it every single week for you, is that you would grow in your faith in the Lord. That you would see college not just as an opportunity to get a job, not just as an opportunity to get skills, but you would realize this is a developmental time in your faith to become little giants in the Lord. That by God's grace will be deployed out like embers from a fire to impact churches, careers, and communities for the glory of God and the good of the body of Christ. This always leads us to our final element, which is this. It's our next steps. What am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with the Word of God I just heard? Every Sunday, we have to do every one of us. And when we finish our service, we always finish in a congregational prayer that we pray together for the Lord. Has a commitment one to another to say, this is our commitment, God. Help us to live this out. And we want to live that out as a church family. But individually, as you look at your life, I have two questions for you for your next steps. First is my responsibilities. How will this text impact my identity today? Are there areas in your life that you look and say, you know what, I know I'm a Christian, but I, I am living in a defeated way. Or I am living how the, word, the world tells me to live rather than the Word. You pray about that and adjust accordingly. Pray about it. Spend time in the Word. Listen to the Spirit as He convicts you and, and comforts you in what your true identity is. And secondly, my relationships, my responsibilities and my relationships. How will this text impact my church tomorrow? Why did I put tomorrow? Because if you're not intentional with what you'll do tomorrow, it'll be gone before you know it. The very beginning of this sermon, I said what? If you want to know what you want to hit in life, know how you want to finish. If you want to, if you want to grow in life, you've got to know how you want to finish. Paul is at the end of his ministry life trying to invest in Timothy how he ought to finish. If you and I want to know how we're to live our life, it's how we want to finish today and how we want to plan for tomorrow as we live out what it means to be the people of God even when the end draws near. Let's pray before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But Father, we thank you for your kindness that you've shown us. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life who laid his life down on the cross. We thank you, God, that we've been adopted by faith in Christ. I lift up to you, Father, every person here. I pray, God, that your spirit would do a work upon their hearts and in their lives. We pray, God, that you would help us to see that we have an identity in Christ. We're not based upon our feelings. We're not based upon the ways of the world. We're not even based upon what our career is or where we live or even our own last name. But we are based upon the identity in Christ. He is our hope. So help us to live this way. Help us to walk consistently with your word and your spirit. And help us, God, to celebrate you in all things that we do. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen. We always gather together and we partake of the Lord's Supper. And we want our children to be in here in part to be able to see you observe what this means. Why do we do this? This is an order of Christ, as is baptism. It's an order of Christ to say, I am with Jesus. 
He is my king, and he's called me to do this, and as often as we partake it as the body, until he comes again. And so I want to be clear from the very beginning, who is this for? This is for people that have committed their lives to Christ. So Jesus, as he goes through this, he, he tells the people, he tells his disciples, as often as you eat this, as often as you do this, remember me until I come again. This is his body broken, and this is his blood spilled for us. So if you have not come to Christ yet, it, it would not be right for you to partake of this. It would be unnatural. Jesus takes what is the Passover meal, that they would celebrate remembering Christ, or I'm sorry, remembering their deliverance from Egypt and bondage and slavery. So much so, they had this unleavened bread. They didn't have time for it to rise. And in Exodus chapter 13, he tells the body, he tells the people, Tell your little kids that when they partake of this, it's as they were being delivered. Even if they weren't there, the idea is that there is this union that takes place here that says, I am with Christ. Just as he died on the cross, just as his body was broken for me, just as his blood was spilled for me, it's as though I was there as he took my place on the cross. The scriptures give us this warning to examine ourselves, and there's two ways that we do this. We examine our lives and say, Lord, is there, is there any secret sin that I'm intentionally harboring and running in? And so let this be a time of repentance in which you confess that to the Lord. But there's also a community element as the family of God. And so as you look around and you think about the body and you say, have I sinned against my brother or sister in Christ? And if I have, I'm, I'm called to confess that to them and restore fellowship in them as I partake of the, the broken body and, and blood of my king. To eat and drink, listen, to eat and drink is synonymous with coming and believing in Christ. His body was broken, so ours will not be broken. His blood was spilled once and for all so that our blood will not be spilled as we believe in our king, Jesus Christ. We do this as a memorial. So as we distribute this, uh, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. We're going to distribute first the, the bread, and we'll say a few words about that very quickly. And we'll pray, and then we'll partake and remember his blood that was spilt for us as one body, as one family of confessing believers in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time to be able to observe your supper. We come here invited we come here invited, just as someone inviting us over to their home. You invite us to this table. You have made this possible. As we receive these elements, we receive them with empty hands. Lord, we bring nothing but our sin to the table, and yet we have been made clean in Christ. So as we remember this, we pray, God, that you would be honored. We pray, God, that our lives would be lived accordingly. But the grace that we, we see demonstrated, this unearned favor that you lavish upon us, we pray that you would help us to live that out in every element of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.